Philippians chapter 4 this morning. Philippians chapter 4, if you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, let's turn there together. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one there provided for you inside of the pew. Philippians chapter 4. Uh, this morning we're going to be looking at the first five verses. Uh, we're already uh, drawing very rapidly in a close uh, to our study through this book, and I hope as I have been, uh, you have been encouraged by what the Lord has taught us here. Uh, I continually, and I, and I say this over and over again, as, as long as I'm uh, preaching, I'm always continually amazed at, at how providentially God orchestrates sermons according to the things that are happening inside of the church, uh, whether it be the lives of the people here or the things that the church is going through. Uh, it's so wonderfully beautiful to see how God sovereignly and providentially uh, orchestrates these things as we preach through these books. And I believe that this book has been uh, has fallen into that same pattern as well in the different things that we have been uh, experiencing as a church. If you found your way there, Philippians chapter 4, I'm going to invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Again, through the first five verses. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Judea and Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared in my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. And you can be seated this morning. As we have studied through this book, we continue to see really over and over again, and, and we've almost talked about it in perhaps every sermon or every other sermon about Paul's love for the church. And he has just spent the first part of this letter really urging the church to joy and faithful obedience in a lifelong pursuit of Christ. Uh, he has encouraged the good that was happening there at the church. He has warned them of the dangerous things that could happen to them and the danger that uh, exists in false teaching. And it has continued all the way through to remind them of God's graciousness to them and of God's love for them. That Paul's heart was, was so evident all the way throughout this book and continues to be until the very last sentence as he closed it. His, his, just, his desire and passion for them. And as he draws this letter now to a close, he, he really begins to pull everything together to give them those final thoughts which he wants them to remember until they could be together again. Uh, just as if you sit down to write a letter, you know, when you get down to the end and you know you're about to put the salutation at the end, you sometimes go back and highlight a few things. It's like, remember, friend, remember this thing that I told you. Remember this. And you draw all of it to a conclusion. And, and the first word of, of verse 1 tells us this is what Paul is in doing because he says, therefore. And so this now Tells us to help, helps us to understand that Paul is drawing all of this to a conclusion. He's saying now, based on everything that I've already told you in this letter, based on everything that I taught you while I was there with you, based on everything that you learned from Christ through me, he says, now do this. Therefore, do these things. And Paul is going to give us, in, in even just in five short verses this morning, Paul is going to give us really four things that we need to as Christians be considered in a considering for our own Christian life. 
Uh, he was writing it here to the church at Philippi, but these are four things that all of us would be wise to apply to our own life. And those four things this morning are resolve, unity, joy, and gentleness. Resolve, unity, joy, and gentleness. I want you to notice first that as a church, that as Christians, that as the Lord's children, we need to have resolve. There in verse 1 he says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Now, as I've said over and over again, you cannot get away from Paul's love for not just the church itself, but for each individual member of the church. And it bears repeating because Paul repeats it so often. Uh, it's not something I think that we can just casually glance over. We need to understand how deeply Paul loved the New Testament church and its members. Uh, and as he does this, he, he opens it with this word, beloved brethren. And he does this because he wants them to be aware of this connection that he felt with them. No doubt, you know, them recognizing Paul as an apostle of Jesus Christ, no doubt there was sometimes in some circumstances where perhaps they felt like, well, you know, he's just doing this because he has to, right? You know, he's a servant of the Lord, and he's just doing this because of, of who he is. But no, Paul wants them to understand that, that there is no pretentious here. He, he's not being pretentious in writing this. He isn't trying to look good in front of anyone else. You know, at the time Paul wrote this letter, Paul had no idea that thousands of years later we would be reading this letter every Sunday morning as we gather together for worship. Paul thought he was just writing a letter to the church expressing his heart and his desire for them. So he was not trying to show off in front of anybody and say, well, let me, let me just demonstrate some kind of false love. But not only does Paul tell them how much he loves them, he tells them how much he longs to see them. He says it was his desire to visibly see them face to face. He wanted to be there. He had been there when the gospel first came to Philippi. He had been there as the church was founded. He had been there even suffering imprisonment, and he wanted to go back and to see all of those whom he had left behind with his own eyes. His love and care for them was so deep. He didn't just want to tell them. He wanted to come and be able to give them that news face to face. He tells them, about his view of the work. This helps us to understand a little bit more about the Apostle Paul. Because really what he's wanting them to do is to stand firm. That's what he says there at the very end. That is the word that we're looking at, the word resolve. And so if we understand Paul's life and his ministry, it helps us to understand this call that he gives to them. Paul had given his entire life since his conversion to the work of the ministry. He had labored in every high place and every low place for the glory of God. He had been willing to lay down everything and sacrifice everything for the good of his fellow man and for the chance that they might profess faith in Christ. Paul was willing to suffer hardships for, for people that he didn't even know personally because he understood their desperate need for a relationship with Jesus Christ. And Paul was not begrudging of this fact. It, it might have been very easy for somebody in Paul's situation to be resentful Right, Because he had given his entire life to serving people, and he wasn't always paid back in the most opportune ways. He wasn't always paid back in the kindest of, of attitudes. And so he had had to suffer on their behalf. He had been in prison. He had been beaten. He had encountered all kinds of difficulty. Now, ultimately, his call and service were from Jesus Christ himself. But in an early perspective, the churches and the members of the church were his most identifiable connection to his calling. But he didn't hold any animosity towards the believers at Philippi or any of the other churches. In fact, he was continually 
viewing his ministry, continually viewing what God had called him to do, as notice what he says there in verse 4, he says, my joy. If Paul had to sum up his ministry, he summed it up with that one simple word, joy. Now, consider that for a moment. Joy. Now, Paul is going to expound upon this in a little bit more just later on. But suffice to say, again, Paul is not being flowerful in his language here. He really means what he is writing. He thinks back to those early days in Philippi. Now, I think all of us have probably experienced something like this. As we think back to the early days of our Christian life and things that God did, Paul looks back and he thinks about those initial breakthroughs in the gospel as he came and preached and people began to be saved. And as those people who were saved began to spread the gospel among their friends and their family, and then the church was established. And even as Paul looked back at Philippi and thought about the time he had suffered in prison on behalf of the Lord, Paul was filled with great joy. Paul would write to the church at Thessalonica and say this, For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? Paul's entire life was summed up with this word joy. And as he rides here back to the church at Philippi, he says, My beloved brethren, those whom I love and I care for, he says, you are my joy. He saw them as, as, as something even more than joy, he tells us, because he says, you are my joy and my crown. Now, the word crown there is the word Stephanos, which refers to the victor's crown or the race that was awarded to the runner who won the race. Paul here is hearkening again back to the image of the athlete as he had done earlier in this book, as he pointed out that it was the the runner who committed himself and strove for the finish line. The one who committed himself to victory was the one who received the prize. Paul had told us that this is what the Christian life is like. It is a, a race. It's one that we must run with endurance and patience, one that we must give ourselves to, because ultimately at the end, the victory is our eternal life and our glorification in Jesus Christ. But Paul says, he says, when I look at you, church at Philippi, when I look at you, members of the church, he says, you are not just my joy, it's not just my my happiness in, in serving and doing what God has called me to do, he said, but you're also my reward. He knew that one day when he stood before God, he would look out at the church and see all of these members and all those who had come to faith in Christ, and to him it would be as a great crown and a reward. Again, he would say to the church at Thessalonica, For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus that is coming? For you are our glory and joy. We can be so tempted in this world to try to build up treasures for ourselves, to try to build up rewards for ourselves. You know, we have a 401k that we're putting into retirement, so when those times come, we can kind of sit back and relax. We, we try to make wise business investments to have lots of money in the bank account, and we think all of those things will be our rewards, right? People pursue athletic events so that they can win rings and trophies. People do all kinds of things to seek rewards, and Paul says, Out of everything that he had in this world, out of everything that he pursued, his greatest reward that he knew he would receive was the faithful obedience of the believers at the church at Philippi. The faithful obedience of the believers at the other churches. Paul says that to me is a great reward and crown. You see, the Scripture is very clear that 
when we play our part in what God has called us to do, when we go out in obedience and share the gospel with people and they come to faith in Christ, in some grand scheme of, of accounting that we can't understand, God credits that to our account. You know, now we don't do it for that reason. We're not going out to get notches in our belts, but we play a part. God has chosen us and gifted us to go out and to play a part in sharing his gospel with somebody else. And through our obedience, God continues to do his work. Now, if you were to trace back the history of maybe some of the greatest people in the room, now we've all heard of, of men like Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers who ever uh, lived uh, upon the earth there in England back in the 1800s. But nobody knows the name of the man who led Charles Spurgeon to faith in Christ. Spurgeon tells the story that he was on his way home one night. It was snowing. He ducked into a small little Methodist church to get out of the cold because it was, he was just freezing to death. He sat down on the back pew, and the preacher who was supposed to be at the church that night couldn't, had not been able to make it to the meeting, and so somebody in the congregation had stood up and just opened to a text in the Old Testament that said, Look unto the Lord, all ye the ends of the earth, and be saved. And this man, at his very best attempts, preached a message that said, you know, it doesn't take a lot to look. All you have to do is look. So look unto Christ and be saved. And in that moment, God converted Charles Spurgeon. Now, we all know Spurgeon's name, but we don't know the name of that man. None of us probably offhand know the name of this, this layperson inside this Methodist church there on some side street in England. But we know Spurgeon's name because that man was faithful. And Spurgeon's life and Spurgeon's ministry is a crown to that faithful layperson who stood in the pulpit that Sunday morning and delivered the gospel, even though nobody knows his name. And brothers and sisters, it's the same for us. When we go out and we share our faith with Christ, for, share our faith in Christ with other people, we don't know what happens. We don't know when God moves oftentimes. But later down the road, somebody that you have shared the gospel with comes to faith in Christ, and then begins to do great things for God on the mission field, great things for God in their local church, great things for God in their workplace. And nobody knows your name, but that person and their work and their ministry is a reward and a crown into your own life. And Paul is overjoyed by this because he sees the obedience of the church at Philippi. He sees what they're doing, and he is filled with such excitement about what is happening there. He says, my, my brethren whom I love beyond compare, who I long to see face to face. He says, you are my joy and my crown. Now, Paul does this because now he's going to call them to something. He, needs, he helps them to understand that they must be ready for what comes next in the Christian life. He doesn't want to see any of them fall away. Paul wants to have a great record of victory and success here at the church of Philippi. And so there at the end of verse 1, he calls them. He says, in this way, stand firm in the Lord. Paul knew the battle that they were already facing. Persecution had already begun to arise there in Philippi, even after he had departed. And they knew that in the future, it was only going to get worse. And in the Christian life, there is no place for retreating or giving up ground. Paul has alluded again to language of the athlete here in the book of Philippians, and earlier he has alluded to language of the soldier, and here now he hearkens back to that as well when he says, stand firm in the Lord. This idea of standing firm comes from the war place language. It's the idea of standing firm on the battlefield. 
The army cannot move forward on the battlefield and have victory if they continue to retreat and give up ground. They must stand firm. Even if they aren't making an advance at a moment, they must not give up the ground. They must hold the ground and stand firm. The ability of the Christian to fight the good fight of faith, to battle against the plots and schemes of the enemy, is found in a proper and true relationship with Christ. Because notice what Paul says there. He doesn't just say to stand firm, but he says stand firm in the Lord. Paul is going to use that language in several places here in this text this morning. Because this is where our strength is found. It's found in the Lord. It's not found in and of ourselves. We have the tendency as human beings to oftentimes come to a place where we think that we can do it on our own. We think because of our family background and because of our upbringing. We think because of the cultural situation where they were in. We think because of the knowledge that we've obtained. We think that we can do it in our strength and on our own. But what Paul is pointing out to us here is that we can never do it on our own, but that God has given us the things that we need in order to be able to stand firm. He says, if you're going to stand firm, stand firm in the Lord. This was language that Paul used all throughout his letters. First Corinthians, he says, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men and be strong. Second Thessalonians, so then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Hebrews chapter 3, for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Now remember, Paul opened this verse by saying, therefore, pointing back to everything that he had taught them, he says, with all of this in mind, with all of this understanding, understand my great love for you, And if you're to draw all this to conclusion, you must stand firm in the Lord. Brothers and sisters, dangers are going to come in the Christian life. Difficulties are going to come. Trials and tribulations. We will have ups. We will have downs. And we must stand firm. We must not relent. We must not allow ourselves to give up ground. And again, how do we do this? We only do this if we do it in the Lord by the power of His Holy Spirit. There are days when we wake up and we don't feel like fighting. But the Holy Spirit Spirit gives us strength. There are days when we wake up and we feel like we should just give up. But the Holy Spirit gives us the strength that we need if we rely upon Him. Now, notice here, Paul calls them to this resolve. And notice again there at the end of verse 1, he uses that same word again. He says, my beloved. Paul couldn't break away from this. He, he wants them to know all of his love for them, especially in light of what comes next. So as we've studied through the book of Philippians, we've seen that there are some differences in this letter in comparison to some of Paul's other letters. There hasn't been a direct confrontation of false teaching in the church or inappropriate behavior. Paul has addressed that there were false teachers who were on the outside who might be tempting to come in. He tells them to be on the lookout. But it wasn't like the church at Galatia where the false teaching had already infiltrated the church and Paul had to address it specifically. There hasn't been, again, a direct confrontation of inappropriate behavior like it was with the church at Corinth. You had a man who was having an inappropriate sexual relationship with someone and Paul had to chastise the church, not only for that man doing that, but because the church hadn't dealt with the situation. 
But as we come to verses 2 and 3, we find that there was something that Paul had to address in the church because it had the potential to cause serious disruption to the work that God was doing there. So not only does Paul call for the Christian life to be one of resolve, but he calls it, secondly, to be one of unity. Look at verses 2 and 3. He says, I urge Eudia and Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, as Paul points this out here, the first thing we see is that there's a problem that has been recognized. Some way, Paul had heard about a situation that was happening at the church at Philippi. Most likely, it was from Epaphroditus, who during his visit had told Paul of what was happening between these two ladies. And we can also determine by the high accolades that Epaphroditus receives from the Apostle Paul that he did not mention it to Paul in a way to be gossiping or with the intention to cause difficulty, but out of a true concern for the two people who are mentioned here in the overall health of the church. What we must learn from this passage this morning is that even in a church, when so many things are going right, when so many things are being done according to the Word of God, that we must be exceedingly aware of situations that can creep in to sow division inside the body of Christ. Paul knew, as we must also learn in practice, that there was no time to wait in dealing with such a situation. It had to be dealt with, and it had to be dealt with immediately. I'm sure that every one of us in this room have gotten a splinter in our hands or somewhere in our body before. Now, a splinter is not all of that great deal of an emergency, right? I don't think any of us, you know, out cutting wood or carrying wood in or doing some, doing some carpentry work, you don't get a splinter, you don't look down at your hand, scream, call 911 and get a hospital, get an ambulance to take you to the hospital, right? It, it's not that big of a deal in the beginning. But if you don't take that splinter out of your hand, there is the potential that something more deadly can happen. It can get infected. And if you continue to ignore the infection from that splinter, it can continue to grow. And eventually, if, if left long enough, that infection from that tiny, insignificant splinter can grow to a point where it can literally kill you. And the same thing happens inside the church. There are situations that arise that are, in the beginning, somewhat insignificant. But if they are not dealt with and handled in appropriately in a godly way, they have the potential to grow into a place where they can become much more disruptive and devastating. So Paul here points out this situation, and it's a situation between these two women, Yodia and Sintichi. I'm so, so thankful that we did not name either of our children or any of our children these things. These are some difficult names, Yodia and Sintichi. Now, interestingly enough, we don't know a lot about these two ladies, except for the fact that here they are mentioned at the church of Philippi, and that they were experiencing some type of disagreement between the two of them. Now, what is clear from the passage in verse 3 is that they were both active and important participants in the ministry of the church there at Philippi. Now, Yodia's name means prosperous journey, and Sintichi's name means pleasant acquaintance. And as one commentator pointed out, what we understand about this situation is that neither of these women were living up to what their names meant. 
Now we can see their involvement in the work of the gospel ministry there by Paul's words in verse 3, and he gives them very high accolades. Look at what he says there in verse 3. He says, to help these women who have shared my struggle and the cause of the gospel. Now that word struggle means to labor alongside. Paul points out that both of these women have shared or labored alongside in the struggle for the gospel. They have been active and, and demonstrative participants of the work of the church there in Philippi. Now, what they did exactly inside the church, we don't know. Paul doesn't determine, doesn't elaborate here, but we can determine a couple of things. Number one, the disagreement between the two of these ladies was known by the entire church. And the reason that we can understand that is because Paul chose to address it in front of the entire church. This was not a letter that was written to an individual. It was written to the entirety of the congregation. And for Paul to point it out in such a public fashion, we understand that it was already a public situation inside the church. Number two, we understand that they held a high position of influence because he talks about the work that they had labored. And thirdly, we understand that although we don't know what they did inside the church, we do know the one thing that they weren't doing is that they were not serving in a pastoral role inside the church. Uh, Paul's letters in 1 Timothy and 1 Corinthians helps us to understand that that role has been limited to qualified men inside of the local church. So even though they were laboring alongside, they weren't serving in a pastoral or elder role, but they were nonetheless vital participants in the church there at Philippi. Now, notice what Paul does, though. Look at verse 2. He says, I urge Yodia and Syntyche. And he notice he uses that word urge with both names. He says, I urge and I urge. Paul wasn't picking favorites or taking sides in this situation. He wasn't pointing one out or the other. He, he no doubt loved both of these women, and whatever they disagreed upon wasn't so important. But what was important was that they didn't let this disagreement drive a wedge between them so large that it would devastate the church. Now you may ask, well, how do you know that what they were disagreeing about wasn't important? Well, we understand that because Paul didn't address it here. If it had been a very important doctrinal matter, if it had been a matter of false teaching or, or, some, type, or some type of inappropriate uh, immoral behavior, Paul, because of his characteristic behavior in other letters, would have pointed that out. He would have said, I charge you to, to command this woman or to charge this woman to not do this particular thing. But Paul doesn't here. He just addresses that there's something going on between these two women inside the church. It was a small disagreement. Now, we understand that this is what it is for Christians to live together. We must have unity amongst one another. The psalmist writes in Psalm 133, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for the brothers to dwell together in unity. Paul would write to the Corinthian church, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no division among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Many commentators believe that even as Paul had wrote the earlier part of this letter, that this topic was on his mind. And even though he chose to address it in the final section of the letter, he did somewhat make reference to it earlier in chapter 2. Because he says, I encourage you to make my joy complete by what? By being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Paul is urging these two women to resolve their differences, and notice what it says, to live in harmony in the Lord. He's calling them to a spirit of unity between the two of them. 
And brothers and sisters, we need to remember this when it comes to insignificant disagreements that may arise among our own body. There are going to be times that we disagree about things that aren't of great importance. Now again, we're not talking about disagreeing upon the virgin birth. We're not talking about disagreeing on on Jesus' substitutionary work on the cross. We're not talking about disagreeing about Jesus' resurrection. But we're not going to tolerate arguments and fights over eschatology, whether you're premillennial, amillennial, or postmillennial. We're not going to separate or fight over those things. We're not going to fight over the color of the carpet in the sanctuary. Now, I always use that as, as a punchline, but I have tremendously and seriously known churches who have split because of the decision over what color was going to be the carpet in the sanctuary. Some of these things may seem small in insignificance, but as we already alluded to, if not dealt with, can cause catastrophic destruction inside the church. So we don't know why these two ladies were arguing. We don't know why they were fighting. But ultimately, all of it roots back in pride, right? Because we can understand by Paul calling them to live in harmony and by Paul's earlier language here, that these two women were both wanting their own way. This is really an intent. What, what causes a disagreement between two people is that both people want their own way and they're unwilling to relent to the way of another. And ultimately, the root of that is our pride. And so Paul says we must be willing to lay our pride down. He's calling them to lay their pride down in order that they may live in harmony. And again, notice the last part of verse 2. It's the same phrase that we saw in verse 1. What? Live in harmony in the Lord. Because in our own sinful flesh, we don't want to give up our own way. We don't want to give up our own preferences. We don't want to give up our own desires. But Paul says, if you will pursue the Lord, you can live in harmony and peace with each other, dwelling in unity together, if you do it in Him. So Paul first points to these two ladies, Yodia and Syntychus. But now, he moves past that and then points out two specific people. Because of the serious nature of this situation, Paul directed two specific individuals to see over this matter and ensure that it was handled correctly and biblically. Paul first calls there in verse 3 on true his true companion. And then he refers to Clement. Now, in the New American Standard that we're using this morning, it's just interpreted there as true companion. In some translations, uh, it's, it's translated as my true yoke fellow. Now, there's been much disagreement on the subject of who this person is. Um, some have debated of whether it was Epaphroditus, some think that it might have been Luke. Others say that it was the husband of one of these two women. Uh, but if you look at the original language, the original language, that word there is actually a, uh, is actually a specific name, uh, Susigos which actually translates to the term yoke fellow. And so many commentators believe that when Paul uses this term for true companion or yoke fellow, he's, he's basically using a, a nickname for somebody inside of the church that the church would have known because of their establishment there, that perhaps it was one of the elders that was already serving there at the church at Philippi. But for whatever reason, Paul doesn't call him by a specific name, but he calls him by his characteristics. He says, you are a true companion. The word yoke fellow or companion alludes back to the day when you would have two oxen side by side with a yoke and that the two oxen would pull together well. 
if you were ever, and I don't, there's not very many of us here in this room that were probably ever out on the field with some oxen, but if you're ever out there with cows or horses and you're pulling, you want two horses that can pull well together. If one pulls stronger than the other, you're going to end up just traveling in a big circle. You want two horses or oxen that can pull alongside faithfully together. And this is the word that Paul is using. He says, you are a person, you are a man who has labored faithfully alongside me. He says, and I'm entrusting you with this situation. He calls on this companion to help these two women. And so his instruction was that if these two women didn't resolve this thing themselves, that this man, this true companion, should step in as a faithful brother in Christ to help them see the situation from a biblical perspective and to resolve it quickly. Paul also tells him that if necessary to call upon another leader in the church, Clement, if needed, Now, Clement's another person that we don't know anything more about than his name here mentioned in the book of Philippians. But we understand that he was 